This morning, as we continue to walk through the Gospel of John, we are going to look at Jesus' response to the betrayal of Judas. And so we're going to be in John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. We have just walked through uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. We have just walked through Jesus communicating uh, to the disciples that, that one of them will betray him. And so this is where we pick up the story. Jesus speaking to his disciples, John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. His disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, that is one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew of what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, It is good, I'm sorry, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love also one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Let's pray. God, as we see this passage, Jesus' response to the betrayal of Judas or may we be both encouraged and convicted. May we see our betrayal and our failure to be obedient. And Lord, may we also see the love of God demonstrated through Jesus. We pray this morning, your Holy Spirit may speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's my prayer this morning that you will both recognize the love that God has for you through the person of Jesus and that you will demonstrate the love of God, that you will embody the love of God as we love others. Uh, 
at Redeemer, our desire uh, is to lift up Jesus as the Lord of all, to live, uh, to live in obedience to the Word of God and to love those who are in the world just as Christ loved those. And so it's my prayer that you will love others. Now, I want to kind of remind us of the setting, remind us of where we are contextually. Jesus has just shared the Last Supper with his disciples. He has just washed their feet. He has communicated to them that the hour for his glorification, the hour for him to be lifted up is now at hand. He's spent the entire Gospel of John saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, it is not my time. And now he's come to the place where he says, now it is time. Now is the time when I will be crucified, when I will be lifted up. I've already told you this is coming, now it is coming to pass. And so this is where we are. This is mere hours before Jesus' arrest, before his trial, before his conviction, and before his crucifixion. It's, it's evening time. We are less than 12 hours away from Jesus being sentenced to crucifixion and being hung upon a cross. Now, as Jesus understands exactly what's going on, I want to point out to us the nature of the text. John chapter 13 the end of John chapter 13, John chapter 14, John chapter 15, and John chapter 16 is Jesus' last commission to his disciples. He knows that, that he is about to leave them. He knows that he is about to be crucified. He knows that he is going to ascend into heaven and that there is going to be this time that, that he has been warning them that is coming and they don't understand it. He's been telling his disciples, you have me now, but in a little while I'm leaving you. While you have the light, walk in the light. When the darkness comes, you will not be able to have the light anymore. He's, he's made this statement over and over again. He told Peter, James, and John, he said at the transfiguration, he's telling them that, that this, this time is, is, is coming to an end. And they didn't quite get it. But we see this extended period, this extended soliloquy, if you will, this extended communication to his disciples in 13, 14, 15, and 16 leading up to his crucifixion that will conclude with John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, and then we see the passion of Christ. So understanding that this is Jesus's communication to his disciples before he is to leave this world, we need to understand that what Jesus is saying to his disciples is extremely vital to what is impending for them. They're about to be left alone. He's told them that this is coming. And so this is his preparation for them. And so what does he tell them? He tells them, stay together, love one another, encourage one another. I'm about to leave. You're about to be left all by yourself love one another. He is preparing them for life without him. Now, it's interesting because at the place where he is, he's hours away from his crucifixion and he's not thinking about himself. Who's he thinking about? His disciples. 
He's sitting down with them. He's just washed their feet. He's just demonstrated to them utter humility and servitude. He's now telling them to love one another. In John chapter 14, he's going to encourage them. He's going to say, the Holy Spirit is coming. Whenever I leave, it's necessary that I leave because when I leave, I'm going to send you a helper. The Father will send you a helper and he will guide you and teach you in all things. And then we get, we get John chapter 15 and John chapter 16 where Jesus is imploring them to be unified and to love one another. And he's imploring them to overcome this world. And the end of John chapter 16, he says, in this world you have tribulation, but take joy for I have overcome this world. He's going to spend the next three chapters encouraging them, speaking to them, fostering this, this love and this unity within them. Because at this point, at the height of, his, of the anticipation that he is about to endure, he is thinking not of himself. He's thinking not of what he is about to walk through, but he's thinking about his disciples. He cares for them. This is the exact antithesis of self-absorption. We live in a world today where we make everything about ourselves. Everything. I heard somebody say the other day, there was a pastor and he and I were talking and, and he said, I was, I was talking with a church member and, and they were concerned about, you know, coming to church because they had involved themselves in, in uh, a rather public uh, embarrassment. And uh, they said, I, I, just, I just don't know what, what people are going to think. And the pastor responded. He said, you know, when we realize how seldom people think about us, we will realize how little of importance it is you realize people that, that we think about ourselves much more than other people think about us? Whenever you come into church and you think, well, you know, what are, what are people going to say whenever, whenever I do this, whenever I do that? Or, or what if I'm dressed like, what, what if I'm not dressed appropriately? Or what if I do this? Or what if I do that? What are people going to think? What are people going to say? And the reality is, is that that's what they're thinking. They're not concerned about you. They're not thinking about you because they're so concerned about thinking about themselves. Jesus, at this moment in his life, when he is about to enter into the most, the most pivotal time in his life, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about others. Now, I want us to notice the proximity of what's going on. I want us to notice the, the, the setting. So here we have, we have Jesus and he's reclined at this table and, and this is a, we've, we've all seen uh, the, the images, the pictures, it, it's probably a very short table, there are pillows around it and in that culture they would, they would lean on their, their elbow or their arm as they reclined at this table and they would eat with the other arm and so you, you have this, this image of all of the disciples and Jesus reclining around this table and the scripture says that there are two disciples that are extremely close to Jesus in proximity. You have John, the beloved disciple, who's leaning on Jesus' breast. And then you have probably right next to him on the other side is Judas at a place of, of importance, at a place of, of very close proximity. And Jesus makes this statement, one of you will betray me. And all of the disciples 
hear this statement. And Luke's gospel actually tells us, if you go to Luke chapter 22, in Luke's gospel, we actually see this response or this articulation of Jesus is saying, one of you will betray me. Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 23, Luke's gospel says this, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the son of man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss amongst themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So Jesus makes the statement, one of you is going to betray me. And you can almost see in your mind's eye, the scripture tells us that, that Peter gestures to John, the beloved disciple, hey, who, who's he talking about? What's he saying over there? Peter is probably some distance away from Jesus for whatever reason. And he gestures to John to try and get some insight as to who it is that is going to betray Jesus. Jesus makes the statement very plainly, very clearly. The one who's dipping his morsel in the bowl with me, it is him. And he dips the morsel and he hands it to Judas. It can't be more clear. But the scripture tells us that the disciples are constantly asking themselves. Matthew's gospel tells us they are asking, is it I? Am I the one who's going to betray him? Emphasizing the statement that I just made. The disciples are so completely self-absorbed and concerned with their own self that they're unable to see and hear the plain communication of Jesus. And I feel like in our lives, this embodies the human condition. We are often so consumed with our thoughts, with our problems, with our difficulties, with our hurts, with our hardships, that we are unable to hear what the Spirit of God speaks to us plainly. When the Spirit of God says that, that we are to love others and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The Scripture tells us that we're to seek God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto us. The Spirit of God tells us that we're to not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. But we are to trust the Lord today. And we are given these clear, plain instructions and yet we're so consumed with ourself that we're unable to hear the very specific instructions of the Lord. Now, how is it that no one understood who was betraying Jesus? I think it's, 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 it's a multifaceted answer to that. I think one is that they were completely self-absorbed and self-centered. I think part of it, too, is the hardness of heart. You know, Jesus has told them over and over again, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. It is necessary that I suffer and die. The Son of Man will be lifted up. The Son of Man will be exalted. I will hang upon a cross, destroy this temple. This temple will be destroyed, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus has told them over and over and over again, it's necessary that I suffer and die. And what has their response been? No, that's not going to happen to you. Surely not. Remember, Jesus told this to Peter. Peter made this unbelievable messianic statement whenever Jesus asked who do men say that I am Peter said you are the son of the living God you are the Messiah 
Jesus said, you're right. God has revealed this to you, not man. God has revealed this to you. And because I am the Messiah, I must suffer. I must die. And Peter, after having made this unbelievable messianic statement, says, yeah, but we're not going to let you die, Jesus. Surely not. Jesus then says, get behind me, Satan. Over and over and over again, he's told them, this is necessary. This is coming. And what has their response been? No. Not you. They have a hardness of their heart. They, they are unable to hear and believe what the Spirit of God is speaking. Additionally, I believe that there was a, a quietness to this. Uh, if any of you have ever been around uh, a dinner table of close friends and family, uh, if you've ever been uh, to my family's house, uh, the volume in the room is... Uh, somewhat loud at times. Uh, whenever you get uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of Italians in a room, uh, the volume goes exponentially up and up and up. And the scripture tells us that, that these disciples were all gathered together. And you can imagine that as they're gathered together, there is... Now, and remember, they're gathering before Passover. Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. There is this messianic expectancy. There is this excitement. There is this joy. They are celebrating. This is a feast. There is an excitement. There is a joy. While there is a heaviness, there is absolutely joy and zeal in this room. And so there is a boisterousness to this. And so as Jesus makes the statement, the one who I've dipped my morsel with is he who betrays me. It's very possible that there were many of the disciples who didn't hear that. I believe there's another facet to this. I believe that they were blinded by the Spirit of God, that they were unable to see and hear what Jesus was saying. It's also possible that they were still so disillusioned and, and confused by Jesus' talk of suffering and death. Remember, they had just heralded Jesus as the Messiah. They had just proclaimed him as the son of David. As he enters into Jerusalem, he is the Messiah. They believe he's the Messiah. They believe that the Messiah is going to take over the throne of Israel, is going to cast off their oppressors, are going to drive out the Romans. And so how in the world could this Messiah suffer and die? And so I believe that, that the inability for them to understand exactly what was going on and hear Jesus' plain communication that this is the guy who is going to betray me, was multifaceted. Now, I want us to see Judas's response. Because I believe that this betrayal in John chapter 13 of Judas speaks to our human condition more than any other character in the New Testament. Judas has walked with Jesus. Judas has heard the teaching of Jesus. Jesus was there at the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus taught. Jesus was there. He heard the Beatitudes. Jesus, Judas was there as Jesus turned the five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed thousands. Judas was in the boat when Jesus stood on the bow and calmed the sea. Judas was in the boat 
as Jesus came walking across the Sea of Galilee. Judas was there when Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. Judas was there when he healed the lame. When the woman who had a hemorrhage, Judas was there when Jesus healed her. Judas was there when Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. Jesus, Judas was there when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and called him from the dead. Judas was there. He saw the works of Jesus. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He was chosen specifically by Jesus, called out of a life of sin and selfishness, a light of legalism, a life of legalism, called into a life of worship of the Messiah. Judas was specifically chosen by Jesus. Judas had his feet washed by Jesus. He was served by Jesus. He was loved by Jesus. And Judas made the conscious decision to say, Jesus cannot satisfy and fulfill what I need. I have to take matters into my own hands. Jesus can't give me what I need. That 30 pieces of silver that I'm going to receive is so much more than Jesus can give me. And I believe in our lives, we may not go to the religious leaders of Jerusalem and offer Jesus for a price of 30 pieces of silver, but we say every day with our heart, we say that Jesus cannot satisfy what I need. I have to take matters into my own hands. Jesus can't fulfill me. I need this relationship or that relationship. Jesus can't supply all of my needs. I need to take matters into my own hands. I need to pursue success over a relationship with Christ. I need to pursue financial gain over my relationship with Christ. Jesus can't meet my needs. I have to take matters into my own hands. I have to do it for myself. That is exactly what Judas did. And we want to look at Judas and we want to say, how can you walk with Jesus every day and then turn around and betray him for 30 pieces of silver, yet we do the exact same thing. Jesus has provided for us. He has cared for us. He has comforted us. He has spoken to us. He has given us anything and everything that we need. The scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father who is above. Every relationship we have, every financial blessing we have, every aspect of security that we have is a gift from God through Christ. And yet, we constantly say, it's not enough. I need to do it on my own terms. I need to fulfill my needs my own way because you're not enough. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And what we hear is 
if I seek my own success, then and only then will I be satisfied. Paul tells the church, he said, that God will supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory. What's interesting is Jesus gave everything, served, loved, and Judas was unwilling to receive it. As Jesus communicates this to His disciples, communicates that one of them will betray Him, He speaks to Judas, He says, look, you go do what you need to do. Do it quickly. And He leaves. And as He speaks to His disciples in the midst of this, this unbelievable announcement that one of them will betray Him, I want us to see how Jesus comforts them. He doesn't comfort them by saying, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. He doesn't comfort them by saying, Look, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. I've got it under control. He comforts them by saying, love one another. Jesus comforts them in his absence. He gives them the command to love, to maintain unity. The comfort for hurt, pain, hardship, and difficulty is the church. Not Baptist. Not Catholic, not Presbyterian, not a denomination. The comfort for his disciples in the midst of this unbelievable announcement, in the midst of what's about to happen. Remember, Jesus is just hours away from his crucifixion, hours away from leaving them. And he comforts them by saying, love one another. He says that in this time, you're going to be lied about. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be abandoned. You're going to experience hardship and difficulty like you've never experienced it. And what you need is one another. What you need is the body of Christ. What you need is the church. You need each other. Jesus makes the statement in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment. Now, Jesus has already summarized all of the commandments. He has said they tried to corner Jesus and they said, Jesus, which of these is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In this, all of the commandments are encapsulated. But here, Jesus gives them a new commandment. What's new about this? So glad you asked. If you look at verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And look at this next phrase. Even as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved the disciples? He has just knelt down. And he has just washed their feet. He has just served them. He's just given himself for them. He says, the new aspect of this commandment is the standard by which we love. He has just demonstrated the sacrificial nature of his love. 
and he will demonstrate it even more. Remember, as Jesus is communicating his disciples, he says, love as I have loved you. And over the next few hours, he is going to expound upon how I have loved you. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to give up everything, including the intimacy with the Father, including that righteousness. He's going to take upon himself sin. He's going to be separated from the Father. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. Jesus said, love as I have loved you. Love with that sacrificial love. Love with that love of service. Love with, with the standard that I have given you. Now, we are absolutely called to love the world. And I want us to understand this. We are called to love the world. We are called to be compassionate. We are called to have empathy. We are called to see our neighbors who are without and give. We are called to, to be benevolent. We are called to be patient with those who know not Christ. But there is a specific call that we, the church, are called to love the body of Christ, to love those within the church even more. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul encourages the churches that are scattered throughout the regions of Galatia, and he says this. He says, so then, while we have an opportunity, let us do good to all men. We are called to love all men. We're called to be empathetic, to be compassionate, to be gracious, to be kind, to be benevolent. But look at what he says especially to those who are in the household of faith. What does Jesus tell his disciples? He says, love one another as I have loved you. There should be a peculiarness to the body of Christ that is different than the world. In the world, outside of the body of Christ, there's love, there's compassion, there's grace. But the love that we have for one another within the body of Christ should be peculiar. It should be different. It should emulate that of Jesus. Sacrificial, not selfish. Servant-related. Prompted by our love for Christ. So, as we come to the end of this passage, I want to ask a very simple question to you. Jesus' response to sin was to love. What is your response? When we are betrayed, when we are done wrong, whenever someone speaks ill of us or whenever someone betrays us or stabs us in the back, what is our response? Is our response, oh yeah, just wait. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Or is our response to love? What about those who are in the church? What about those who are in the body of Christ? Are we loving with a selfless, sacrificial love? Jesus made this statement. Not only did he say love one another, but look at what he says in verse 35. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. 
How are you loving one another? Will your love of others draw men to Christ? Christ loved with a sacrificial love. His response to betrayal, his response to sin is love. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus. While we were haters of God, while we, while we wanted nothing to do with God, the scripture tells us God demonstrated his own love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The message of the gospel says that God saw us in our condition. He saw us in our sin. He saw us in our depravity and loved us so much that he left heaven, came down to earth, suffered and died for you and for me. That if we would place our faith and trust in Jesus, we may have eternal life. What is your response to sin? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good, gracious, and kind. We thank you that in the midst of hurt, pain, betrayal, that you responded with grace and love and mercy. God, may you implore us as your church, as your people, to respond with love and kindness. God, may we love one another and may the glory of God may be seen through our love for one another, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. May our compassion and our love for others draw men unto Christ. May it be peculiar, different. As we interact with our neighbors and our co-workers and they see the love of Christ in us, may they be drawn to your bleeding side. Maybe this morning God is speaking to your heart. Maybe this morning God is convicting you of your response to sin. Maybe this morning, God has opened up your heart to show you that you're just like Judas. Though he's given you everything, you still want to take matters into your own hands. We don't trust him to fulfill our needs. We don't trust him to, to, to satisfy our soul. So we look for things of this world to satisfy us. Maybe God is calling you this morning to be satisfied in Him. Maybe God's calling you this morning to love those who are in the world. Maybe, maybe this morning God has revealed for the first time how much He loves you. So much so that He left the glory of heaven take upon himself your sin and my sin. Maybe God's calling you this morning to join us at Redeemer as we serve the body of Christ. Whatever it is that the Lord, whatever it is that the Lord is speaking to you this morning, may today you find yourself obedient. We thank you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. You stand